Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognizes the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Arda Greta Hunter. Over recent weeks, we've been reimagining social policy in Australia, exploring a range of issues, from what we can learn from the shocking abuses and policy failures of robo-debt, to how we think about evidence-based policy. Today, we have two wonderful guests to help us work through some of the issues around inequality and disadvantage that often seem to be embedded in the approach Australia has taken to social policy in recent decades, and which are increasingly characterising our society, and to help us reimagine some different approaches. Joining us today are Associate Professor Ben Phillips. Ben is a Principal Research Fellow at the Centre for Social Research Methods here at the ANU. He has more than 20 years' experience as an economic and social researcher in Australia and has worked on issues from housing affordability and financial stress to how we can reform the taxation and welfare systems. Professor Kay Cook is Associate Dean of Research at the School of Social Sciences, Media, Film and Education at Swinburne University of Technology. Kay is a former Australian Research Council Future Fellow, and her work has focused on a range of social policy issues, including welfare to work, child support, and childcare policies. Both Professor Cook and Associate Professor Phillips are members of the Federal Government's Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee. Welcome, Ben. Welcome, Kay. It's so wonderful to have you both with us today. So, Ben, you've done a great deal of work on how inequality, poverty and financial stress play out in Australia. Before we begin to talk about the policies, the interventions and reimagining of approaches that might be needed, I wonder if we might start today's conversation asking you to map out for us what your research tells us about these things, how they're playing out and who it is in Australia who is most affected. There's lots of different ways of looking at this, at the problem of disadvantage or poverty or financial stress, trying to work out who it is that's, uh, that's really struggling in Australia. Um, but there's some, I guess there's some common groups that we tend to always find are, are, are problematic and things don't actually necessarily change all that much, that much through time. Um, so particular groups that we almost always find are, are struggling financially uh, it's either they've got um, you know, very low levels of, of income, they face significant uh, financial stress, uh, they've got very high housing costs relative to their incomes, 
there's a whole range of other, of course, other issues that could be affecting these sorts of individuals or families. But I tend to focus mostly on the sort of the dollars and cents, the financial side. So let's say single parents. Typically in Australia, we have um, relatively low levels of, of employment for single parents, say compared to, say, couples. Uh, they tend to have much lower income levels, much more likely to be in, in poverty and, and financial stress. We also have, say, low-income renters. Um, so not all renters struggle, but we typically we find that, say, somewhere between sort of 25 35% or even more percent of renters are in pretty dire financial stress. Uh, they have, uh, they, you also consider them to be in housing stress and very often poverty. Uh, so that's, that's sort of not at all uncommon to have all three of those. Beyond that, of course, there's Indigenous Australia, which has, for many, many years, many, many decades, uh, has been a problem. Their, their issues are, uh, are not just financial, but certainly in the area that I look at, financial stress is very high. Uh, their rates of poverty are, are very, very high indeed. Employment rates are often very low. Unemployment is very high. We have this continual issue in Australia, which should be relatively easily fixed, but um, it's something which we failed to to really improve upon, and that is that um, those on welfare payments, particularly the working age welfare payments, uh, are in very deep financial stress and very deep poverty. Um, so that's, say, particularly those who are on the working age payments, such as the job seeker payment. That can also include, say, those on youth allowance payment. Um, it's a little more generous, but we still have issues with people on, say, with, particularly women, single parents on the single parent payment or the parenting payment. Um, those on disability support payment, you know, it's, it's a little more generous than the job seeker payment, but it still remains the case that many of those people are in quite significant financial stress. We also have some particular regions, I guess, of Australia where there are, it's quite common for there to be um, quite high levels of financial stress. We often think a lot about capital cities. So Sydney is being, say, the capital of, um, of say, cost of living pressures, and no doubt it is quite expensive to live in Sydney, and there's many people who struggle in Sydney, no doubt at all. Uh, they also also tend to have higher incomes. It's a little bit like Canberra. Yes, there's people here who are poor and struggle, but we do tend to, on average, have have higher incomes than say um, many regional parts of Australia and some other capitals of Australia. So, so often in the statistics, in the poverty numbers and the financial stress numbers that we we estimate, we develop. So, regional parts of New South Wales often struggle. So, coastal areas of New South Wales with often an older demographic is an area where we have significant financial stress and, and poverty. Uh, regional Australia, so regional Queensland, regional New South Wales, Victoria. Um, incomes tend to be much lower and often their employment rates are not quite as high as, say, in the cities. Um, so I think that's sort of a, a very sort of brief overview of some of the areas where uh, of groups that tend to struggle. Um, there's, there's a much deeper story than all of that, but that's hopefully a bit of a headline perspective on it. Ben, thank you. That's a really useful way to start this conversation, I think, to have kind of mapped out where the real issues are across the country. And of course, one of the, the issues that's been much debated is the rate of working age benefits and how that plays into poverty and financial stress. Each of you were members of the, the federal government's Interim Economic Inclusion Committee, which is quite a name, I've got to say, and it feels like it needs an acronym, but it's hard to come up with one. But that committee was established by the Treasurer, Dr Jim Chalmers, and the Minister for Social Services, Amanda Rishworth, in December last year. The report of that committee, which you delivered earlier this year, made a number of recommendations. The first was that the government increase the, the base rate of job seeker. The second was that the government commit to increasing Commonwealth rent assistance. 
And the third was around timeframes to bring in increases in those benefits. In the most recent budget, we saw a $40 per fortnight increase to JobSeeker. And then indexation has brought that to a $56 per fortnight increase, which will start from September. And there was also an increase to Commonwealth rent assistance. I would love to hear each of your thoughts on what that increase means for people who are relying on working age benefits and for poverty, inequality and financial stress in Australia more broadly. Ben, can we start with you? You know, is, is that increase going to make a difference to the picture that you just mapped out for us? Look, I think every dollar helps. I think when you've got as little money as people do who are on, say, the job seeker payment and other related payments, every dollar does matter. So the, the increase wasn't nearly as substantial as what the report recommended or, or found would, would improve adequacy of the payment. So I think we looked at an increase or suggested an increase of about 250 a fortnight or a little bit more than that it might have been. So taking the payment from being about 700 a fortnight to about 950 a fortnight, I think with indexation, it might be a little bit higher than that now. But the increase of $40 a fortnight, I mean, it's it's simple mathematics. $40 is not $250. It's it's a long way from it. Uh, so it doesn't really even get you close to where you probably need to be to, to get, say, close, not even still to get to the poverty line. It still would have you under the poverty line. It still has you at about 90% of the age pension. I don't think anybody thinks the age pension is like a king's ransom. So it's $40. Look, it's a good start. We had a $50 increase a couple of years prior to that. So we're starting to slowly head in the, head in the right direction. So that's promising. That's the, the positive that I take out of it. That is that governments, uh, both sides, both Labor and Liberal, have uh, slightly changed their tune a little bit and been a little bit more generous with JobSeeker. But is it enough? It's absolutely not enough. Uh, the committee had recommended getting up to $9.50. This probably gets us to about $7.50. So long way to go, and I would expect that the committee will probably continue to recommend that the payment be increased to you know somewhere roughly around what had already been suggested or recommended by the committee, which was about nine fifty a fortnight. So long way to go, a lot of work to be done. Um, at this point, it's not really generous enough. It's just simply not enough to live on. Okay, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, and and also your thoughts on whether we are seeing a change in the way this current government, but all sides of politics are are thinking about working age benefits and the very low rate that they've been set at for a very long time now. I think when you view these changes, the very modest changes that Ben has described in line with the commentary around the RoboDebt Royal Commission findings and the the rhetoric of the need to change the way we treat people in receipt of payments and the sort of the very punitive system that we have and change that to a, a perspective where it, it, for everyone at some point in their life they might rely on benefit payments and income support payments, that I think we're still doing the country a disservice by really setting these benefits below the poverty line is not the hand up, the safety net that this payment should provide. The job seeker rate as well, there was that change in the budget around moving parenting payment, changing that from eight back to 14, that parents can receive parenting payment until that time before they go on to JobSeeker. But prior to that, a lot of the people in receipt of JobSeeker were either single parents or people with significant health issues that 
that really shouldn't be on this unemployment benefit. These are people that are either doing caring work or they're people that are going to need additional support to be able to enter the labour force and yet we're setting their benefits at a below poverty level wage. So in the committee, some of the people that we spoke to in the consultations, they're telling us that they're having to choose between medicine or food. And I'm assuming like those consultations were done when it was warmer, but now they'd be choosing between medicine, food or heat, that this isn't an adequate payment when this is the situation we're putting people in. And that's not going to provide a pathway to employment that is purportedly the purpose of these benefits. So I think the entire system really needs to be rethought of of providing people with an adequate safety net so that then they can shape their lives in a way that will provide long-term economic benefits. Kay, I'd actually like to just take this question a little bit further. You've just mentioned that there were changes to the single parent payments in the recent budget coming into effect in September and mainly affecting single mums because it's women who are overwhelmingly the single parents. What's your assessment of these changes? Do you think we're beginning to see social security policy that's more gender sensitive, more supportive of women who are in financial hardship? Or or do we need a more fundamental structural change? I think both. (laughs) I think we we are seeing greater recognition of the unpaid work of care, the the gender of the state, that that there is an assumption when we talk about people on job seeker that these are unencumbered would-be workers when that, that really isn't the case, or at least it wasn't. The the move to 14 was a positive step. It was it was good. It's recognizing that children don't aren't independent at at nine or at eight, um, but they're still not independent at 14, that parenting, if anything, the costs increase as children are going into those later years of high school, that parenting continues on. And so I think we're still doing a disservice to children and to their parents where we have to consider the sort of the infrastructure as well of how how are we expecting single parents to find employment that fits within school times in in outer suburbs or in regional areas where transport might not be good where you're on below poverty level incomes that how do you maintain a car or pay for before or after school care that it's there's lots of pieces to this puzzle that that aren't being solved by this slight change in benefit rate or the move like a few extra years on single parent payment, that these are bigger structural issues. I think the the National Plan for Violence Against Women and Children provides a useful lens that in the way that that's talked about the government's own systems need to be looked at at the way that they support women. And Summers' report showed that there was alarming rates of single parents who had experienced family violence prior to separation, that that was one of the drivers as to why single parents need to rely on the benefit system. And if we use that lens of 
providing a supportive service, not just for social services in the community, but the government's own services, I think that asks us to do more and to do better and not just then blame these single parents for their own situation of, of why are you not working? And I don't, I think that is becoming socially evident that that's not a tolerable position. Kay, I just wanted to stay with you for a moment and, and continue with some of these themes. You've recently published what I found to be a, a fairly confronting report based on surveys with, I think it was a, about 540 respondents, in order to understand separated mothers' experiences of child support, family violence and financial safety. And of course, you were thinking about child support in terms of the, the money that's paid by the non-residential parent. Kate, would you be able to just talk us through what you found in that study um, and the way in which those issues of, of child support, family violence and really deep financial precarity are kind of coming together? So first I'll say that this isn't a representative sample. So it, it's not like Anne Summers' analysis of ABS data or nationally representative survey data. This is a a self-selecting sample of people who wanted to tell us about their experiences of when this goes wrong. So it it's the pointy, the very pointy end of the child support and benefit systems. And so some of the takeaways were that overwhelming number who were reported that their ex-partner was able to control them through the child support system by withholding payments or manipulating the amount to be paid, uh, a recent change to federal policy around the way that overpayments and debts are recouped has really opened this door as well, where if both parents need to lodge tax returns to be able to calculate child support accurately, and then the amount of child support that is paid then reduces family tax benefits. It's assumed that you will be receiving child support, so the government doesn't have to provide you as much family tax benefit part A. So if you're receiving family tax benefit, there's no way the government's going to not let you lodge a tax return. So if you're the recipient parent, most often the mother, the government knows exactly what your income is, that you have to report that you have taxable income, do your tax return, but for the paying parents, there's a lot more discretion there and tax returns can be lodged late, they can be lodged, not lodged for years. This then feeds into how much child support's expected. And if you have a malicious ex-partner that wants to cause financial harm, this is a really excellent system that you cannot lodge tax returns for years, put in provisional incomes or income estimates that might say you owe $200 a week in child support. So for recipients who collect that money privately, which is half the caseload, their family tax benefits would be reduced by $100 each month, assuming you got the $200. Then if a decade later all those tax returns are lodged and you should have been receiving $400 a month in child support, you should have be, had your family tax benefit reduced by $200 a month, not $100. So now you've been overpaid family tax benefits retrospectively. And this was the change in the policy that these retrospective family tax benefits are now owed to the state. So now the government will recoup that money 
that you didn't know that you had to collect, that the government assumes you collected at the time in full. So it's really enabling debts to be owed to the government that are then forcibly pursued. Unlike child support, which there's $1.7 billion of unpaid child support that isn't terribly well enforced or pursued. So that was sort of one of our main findings, that it's this connection between child support and family tax benefits that really can disrupt women's incomes and be used to really make this poverty level income even more uncertain. And people reported that income is typically withheld, say, right before Christmas or right before children's birthdays or right before the beginning of the school term to have that maximum impact to make mothers look like bad parents, to make them financially precarious, to really disrupt that family's finances. And it's enabled by the below poverty level benefits and these interactions between child support and family payments. Kate, that's such a, a powerful summary of those findings that you gave. And I think it demonstrates so clearly how gendered the social security system is, but also how inhuman it can be and the way in which supports can actually indebt people. We, we saw that through robo-debt, but you know, it can happen in other ways. And that's deeply worrying um, when, we, when we think what that system is meant to be and how it's meant to support people and what it's actually doing in practice. We're going to take a, a very short break now. Listeners, don't go away. We're going to be back with Ben Phillips and Kay Cook in just a moment. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're talking with Associate Professor Ben Phillips from here in the ANU and with Professor Kay Cook from Swinburne University. And before the break, we mapped out just a few of the very deep social policy problems based here in Australia. We now want to turn to how we might think about the pathways forward, our imagination, reimagination. Ben, I'd like to start with you. Last year, you and Richard Webster published a paper on how Australia's taxation and welfare system could be fairer. I wonder if you might share with us the major findings and the recommendations from that work that looked at how to reduce what you describe in the report as the growing gap between the haves and the have-nots in Australia. And that's a gap that's very apparent. So this is our report with St Vincent de Paul. And we were trying to come up with a not necessarily a new scheme, not really reinventing the wheel, um, not sort of some sort of you know, utopia 
of where your welfare potentially could be. Uh, but looking at the current system, how can we tweak the current system to improve it? Uh, so what do we need to do? And effectively what this means is you need to spend a bit more money. So at the moment, the government spends maybe about $130, $140 billion per year on, on welfare, in particular government payments, government cash payments. And we were doing a simulation or a modelling exercise of, of how that system could be improved in terms of lowering poverty lowering financial stress in Australia, particularly for those groups we know that struggle the most. Um, so the Economic Advisory Inclusion Committee had recommended an increase in the job seeker payment. So we took that on board. So we looked at what happens if you increase job seeker, um, increasing it by a modest amount, say about the $250 per fortnight, which was recommended. Uh, we also looked at increasing some of the other payments, so increasing rent assistance. So increasing it by, I think it was about uh, about 40% was one of the versions that we that we modelled. We also looked at increasing family payments and some of the other working age payments in particular, uh, the disability support payment uh, and the carer payment. So pers persons on these payments, they some, some of them have slightly more generous payments than others, but uh, a common denominator amongst all of them is that all of them do struggle financially. So even if you do give them some more money, doesn't necessarily solve all of their all of their problems, at least financially, but it can improve their situation somewhat. It can bring them back into the pack a little bit in terms of where their income sits. Uh, so we had some pretty astonishing numbers for, say, the poverty rates of, say, those on the job seeker payments, uh, people who that's their main source of income. Most of them are, are in poverty. Uh, but if you increase the payment just by modest amounts, say $250 per fortnight, um, their poverty rate does come down substantially. It doesn't come down as low as the rest of the population, but it does improve quite dramatically. So we're really we're taking the current system, keeping in mind that I think politically, say, so like a universal basic income, it, there's lots of people who are quite a, a fan of that program, of, of that approach to welfare. Um, that's where everybody gets, say, a set amount that's, say, say, at least the poverty, the poverty line. The trouble with that, though, is, of course, it's two major problems. Is One, it's very expensive, so it does cost hundreds of billions of dollars, and two, that requires funding through increased taxes. And politically, in terms of writing these sorts of papers, it's nice to write those sorts of papers, but it's not like a politician's going to look at that and say, well, hey, let's, let's pick up this policy and let's implement that at the next budget. So we're really looking at what can we do for people right here, right now, effectively. And it's also probably has some political chance of actually being somewhat realistic in terms of happening. So it might be that universal basic income is a wonderful idea and at some point in the future that could be looked at, but in the short term that's not really likely to happen politically. So we tried to look at increasing the payments that need increasing the most to lower poverty. So we used a, uh, an algorithm that we've developed where we look at for every extra dollar you spend, how much do you lower poverty and what's the, what's the most cost-effective way of lowering poverty? So you could, for example, give an extra billion dollars a year to the age pension, but because most most age pensioners are either on the poverty line or above the poverty line, uh, they've got low housing costs, it's unlikely to make much difference to overall poverty rates. Whereas if you increase, say, a job seeker by a billion dollars, you get a, quite a substantial reduction in the poverty line and financial stress. So that's kind of the approach we took. And we looked at modest amounts. So we looked at increasing it by three different scenarios. One was $4 billion per year of extra spending. One was $10 billion, And one was a little more optimistic, and that was $20 billion. And overall, I think with the $20 billion approach, which is a lot less than, say, a, a, a universal basic income where you might be needing to spend you know, $300, $400, $500 billion extra per year, we we're getting reductions in poverty of about a million persons per year. So that's cutting poverty in Australia by 
by nearly a third from, say, about 3.5 million to about 2.5 million persons. That's quite a substantial increase. The cost is, I think, to a politician is still quite dramatic, but in the scheme of things, not really that dramatic and certainly, I think, quite affordable. So where do you get the money from? So money doesn't grow on trees, unfortunately. And we looked at a number of options in the tax system. So we did look at um, reducing the discount that's applied to capital gains tax. So at the moment, if you make a capital gain in Australia, you get a discount of 50%. So if you made, say, $10,000, you only pay tax on half of your gain, uh, which is relatively generous. There are reasons why there's a discount, uh, but we looked at at reducing the size of that discount from a 50% discount to only a 30% discount. So still uh, somewhat generous, but not as generous as what it previously was. We also looked at tinkering with the stage three tax cuts. So in about 11 months' time, there'll be a tax cut of around about $20 billion per year. So that's a very, very large reduction in tax that mostly benefits high-income Australians, to some extent middle-income Australians, but mostly high-income Australians. So that's an obvious place where we could do some tinkering to get some additional money. We didn't look at removing it entirely. We thought there were some aspects of the stage three tax cuts that did make some sense, but the uh, increasing or decreasing the rate from 37 cents in the dollar down to 32 cents for those earning above $120,000, we, we removed that. So that saves about, I think it was about eight or $9 billion per year. So it's a pretty, pretty dramatic saving and um, goes a long way towards being able to fund the sorts of social security system that, I think um, low-income Australians, do, they probably need. Um, we also looked at making some changes to superannuation. So there's some very big concessions in superannuation that go mostly to high-income, high-wealth persons and, and families and households. Uh, so at the moment, you only pay, say, 15 cents in the dollar on your earnings in superannuation. And once you retire, so at the age of, say, 60, you pay most people pay no tax at all. Uh, so, and also on the money that goes into super, it's a, the tax rate's 15 cents in the dollar. So that tends to be very concessional to middle and particularly high income and high wealth persons. So we, we looked at lowering that. So linking it to your income and still having some concessionality in superannuation, but lowering that concessionality. So if you're on, say, the top rate of 45 cents in the dollar, so earning above $180,000 $180, per year, we're looking at lowering that, that uh, tax from $0.45 cents to $0.30, cents, which is quite a bit higher than, than your current rate of $0.15 cents in the dollar, but just means you get somewhat less of a concessional taxation for your superannuation, and that's, that's, that provides about an additional $7 or $8 billion per year. So when you add all of this up, we had about an extra $20 billion of, of tax revenue, which is there to provide for that most generous option. And obviously, for our $4 billion per year option, we didn't need to collect nearly as much revenue, so we didn't need to change the tax system in terms of personal income tax or superannuation, we just change it for the for the capital gains tax discount. Um, so that's sort of the approach we took, and we we've not surprisingly found that say uh, poverty rates, particularly for for those groups that were mo- that are most impacted by poverty, say single parents, low income renters, uh, working age uh, working age welfare recipients, their poverty rates declined quite dramatically. So say for say those on the um, on the job seeker rate, you might have had, say, a poverty rate of around, say, 60%, and I think roughly it was halved. Now, 30% is still a reasonable amount of poverty, but it does improve the situation dramatically. And also, importantly, it doesn't just lower poverty, but it lowers the depth of poverty. So we talk a lot about poverty, and look, poverty is, um, look, it's, you know, it's really just a line in the sand. It's quite arbitrary. Um, 
I think it probably is quite a, where we have the poverty line in Australia, which is roughly around about a thousand fifty per fortnight. It's probably fairly sensible. But what really concerns me is where you've got say those job seeker recipients and their income is say seven hundred per fortnight, whereas the poverty line is say well over a thousand per fortnight. So not only are they in poverty, they're well below the poverty line. So while some of them may still be in poverty, um, it it leads them to a place where they're much closer to the poverty line. They've got more money, and you know every dollar helps. Um, maybe in an ideal world, their payment would be even higher than that. We could recommend something even higher. Um, but within the unfortunate political realities of the world, uh, it's difficult to spend too much money and, and change the tax system too much. It's just the reality of Australia. But I think the what was proposed there lowers financial stress, lowers poverty very dramatically. Uh, and it would be a very good start, I think, to having a much better social security system. There's a lot of other issues, some of which Kay has touched on around so the mutual obligation requirements that are probably a little bit too difficult here in Australia, too difficult, particularly for people who are already facing many challenges and disadvantages, such as being a single parent or living in, in high unemployment areas or having mental health issues and, and so on. But at least providing more money is a, is a useful start. Ben, thank you. I think that's it's such a clear overview of the work. But I think the power of that work is that it begins to rethink how we can approach Social Security particularly, but how we can think about reducing poverty in Australia, but it does so in ways that give governments really practical ways forward that are likely to be at least largely politically palatable. And, and that really matters when we start to think about how we can reimagine our social policy system. And I think that point you made about the depth of poverty is just so important for us to keep in mind. Kay, I, I wanted to, to come back to you. And before the break, we were talking about changes to single parent payment and, and some of those real problems around the income support system for single parents, usually single mothers, and the challenges around ongoing inequities in Australia go much further than that. You've written very recently about women's unpaid and poorly paid caring work, which can, often continues to be assumed to be largely unproblematic. If we're going to begin to reimagine social policy in Australia in ways that advance gender equity, but also address the poverty that many women face, what do you think are some of the first critical steps that need to be taken around the way we think about both paid and unpaid care? That's a great question and a fairly big question. <laughs> I'll just solve that in the next five seconds. I'll be fine. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Kay. We'll, we'll put your recommendations directly to government. <laughs> um, we have, not just in Australia, but internationally, we have a problem with the recognition of caring work. That is fundamental underpinning of women's financial subordinate position. It's no wonder that all of the caring jobs that we're seeing in the economy that are priced out of the housing markets, that are essential workers are also highly underpaid workers and they're also workers where the government sets their wages and they're overwhelmingly women. And the stage three tax cuts that Ben was talking about, the superannuation that Ben was talking about, these are programs that will benefit overwhelmingly high-income men while low-income women doing caring work, either paid or unpaid, in a hospital setting, in a school, in an early childhood centre, in an aged care facility, in disability services, are getting further and further and further behind. And this is 
one of the fundamental problems that we as a country do not fund caring work or value it in either paid or unpaid capacities. So that's where I would begin. And then for women who are engaging in their private paid employment, we don't we make that as hard as possible. We have childcare and education systems that are very inflexible and yet we have a highly sort of flexible workforce for, at the lower end of the the employment spectrum, like casualization, shift work, uh, on-call, uberization of the, these kinds of trends are happening while we have these very rigid systems of childcare and employment. So it it's no wonder that women are finding it very difficult to balance these things. Um, COVID for a lot of people was a godsend, like we, either for people in receipt of benefits, had a real reprieve around their incomes. Like Ben was talking about that if you just give people more money, it can make a really positive difference. Uh, but it also reduced some of these time pressures. Some some women that really didn't go well, like I'm not saying this was the panacea for everybody, that there were enormous challenges around schooling, childcare and working from home, but it reduced the some of the logistics challenges that are also really invisible of how women make these triangles of home, care and work work. And it's a really difficult challenge. And if you're doing that in a below poverty income, then that's almost impossible. And we don't, we just think that care magically happens and it magically happens without any time or effort. And it doesn't. And that's where all of the wheels fall off. So I think if we can, if we can change that by getting more women in parliament who are juggling work and care that will make an enormous difference but they're still at a social position where that is a lot easier where you can pay to have some of these logistics challenges disappear or you can you can afford to have them taken over by someone else uh, or if you have a supportive partner that can work so it's still if we have and the reason we probably don't see more single parents in parliament is because it's not possible. Like that's that's one of the more extreme challenges of how do you do fly in, fly out work as a single parent isn't going to be particularly easy. So I think it's an enormous challenge and the more diverse people we have in parliament will go some way to solving it. What an amazing conversation today. We could talk about a lot of this for a lot longer um, particularly how we might imagine an economy that's based on care. We've just recently seen the release of measuring what, the Measuring What Matters framework, uh, which the Treasurer has described as the first but not final attempt at developing a wellbeing framework for Australia. And a quick shout out to our listeners, if you haven't had a chance to have a look at it, I do recommend that as I, I think it should be robustly discussed. I think feedback um, and ongoing discussion would be valuable. But as we draw today's conversation to a close, I would love to hear from both of our guests their reflections on whether a wellbeing approach is what we need if we are to have a more equitable social policy in Australia. And and do you have any reflections on that recent framework? Ben, we might start with you. 
I did look briefly through the um, the wellbeing report, and look, it, it seems like it's a it's a good um, start. We have had similar reports in the past. I know the ABS used to have measuring Australia's progress, um, which I, I forget exactly when that was. It might have been back in the two thousands, I think. Uh, unfortunately, that that report was was canned. I think probably about seven or eight years into its um, into its little career. Uh, look, I think these things are, are important to measure. It's, it's important to, to measure the, the areas of, of the country that are doing well and the areas of the country that are doing badly, and and that's useful information in terms of trying to work out, you know, what you what you can do to improve the situation for those who are struggling, and also to work out the, the, the dimensions of the problem. There was probably some issues with the report being, you know, its first run. It will, no doubt will improve from here, and there's some commentators did mention that there was some of the data was out of date, and that's. Certainly the case, uh, certainly in my area, we have, say, financial stress and, and income data that's really, there's no update through COVID. We've you know, got a, a supposed cost of living crisis and rental crisis. We've got pretty limited information on that. So that was, um, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but it was disappointing to me that we, as a country, don't have more up-to-date information in, in, that, in that regard. It would strike me that we've had an awful lot going on in the last few years with COVID and with rent increases and cost of living uh, issues and, and inflation. And it would be very useful to know a lot more about how households are actually travelling. At the moment, we've got a lot of anecdotal data, but as a researcher, that's not always that useful to me. It's it's, it's interesting, but um, I think we could do a lot better than that. But look, yes, it's, it's a good start, and I look forward to seeing more of these reports um, into the future. They tend to highlight groups that I think most of us in research areas, social science research, are already quite well aware that we're um, you know, areas we're struggling, uh, but it's also good to highlight it to the public, which which are those areas. And I think um, I'm not sure the budget's always the right place for these, but it's, it's certainly a high-profile place to put it alongside the, the rest of all the financial information in the budget. So it's useful that it's out there every year. Um, probably a lot of these statistics don't, don't tend to change year to year, but I think it's useful a useful reminder of for the public and for politicians and for uh, for researchers as well to, to remember who are the groups that are struggling the most and how significant their battles are. Kay, can we ask your thoughts on is a wellbeing approach going to be helpful for us and, and what were your impressions of that recent Treasury report? I think a wellbeing approach will always be helpful. I think there's, it's only going to contribute to the discussion. I agree with a lot of what Ben said Yes, some of the measures might be out of date. I think that's also a good thing that if we'll sort of shame the government into investing more in collecting information that matters so that it can report on what matters. I do take some issue with the measuring what matters, what matters to who and and. I've written previously around like in micro things like using Centrelink data that only captures what the government's interested in but is that what the people on the ground are interested in is that what matters to them these big picture they're capturing a point in time of what some of the outcomes are but what might be more useful to know is how and why these things are happening that Say to use the example of child support, for example, that the data that we have there is what was paid and when was it paid and was it the amount that should have been paid or not? 
but that doesn't capture any of how those payments come about, whether they're coerced or whether there's concessions, whether they're withheld. So if you have, you were owed $500 one month and you didn't get it, but the next month you got $500, that looks like it was fully compliant. But the previous $500 has sort of dropped off in that picture. So all of our data around Hilda, it's just what happened last month? Was it right or wrong? There's a lot of between the lines that is really what makes a difference to people's lives. How do these things work? How accessible are Centrelink systems? Are you receiving the right payment that you should be on? Like None of this is going to be captured in these very big picture data sets. So like what we've been now funded to do in the, we have an acronym, it's an EAC for the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, which I would happily change that, that we need to be asking people what matters to them, what what do they want to see government do for them rather than government framing what they will do for us and we will agree or not with it. So I'd like to see that opened up more. It's a great starting point and it's it's about holding government to account, but I'm not entirely convinced that they can hold themselves to account by them having control of this document and what will be in it or not. Okay, I think that's the perfect place to end this conversation to ask who is accountable and who's accountable to whom. They're such important questions for us to continually reflect on. This has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you both for your time and for your expertise. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. To me, it was such a wonderful combination of reimagining our values and pragmatic thinking. Kay talked so powerfully about how we can reimagine what we value and how we value it and the need to genuinely value care and to recognise that valuing care means how we financially value it, but also recognising that time really matters. And we also had those wonderful insights from Ben, which were quite pragmatic around the kinds of immediate shifts within the payment system that would make a real difference to poverty in Australia. And they're steps that could be taken very quickly if we have the political will. And if we as Australians give government the licence to do the things that are needed, to reduce poverty and ultimately end it in this country. In reflecting on that very recently released Measuring What Matters framework for thinking about Australia's wellbeing approach, Ben raised that critical issue around data. And so very often what we measure is driven by the data that we already have. And if we are genuinely going to move towards a wellbeing approach in Australia, We may not have the data we need. We may not have the data that speaks to what we really value, despite being a data-rich country. So these are some of the issues that we do need to grapple with. And Kay's final point about what matters to whom is so important. As we think more deeply about a wellbeing approach in Australia, we really do need much more discussion around what that means. The recently released Measuring What Matters framework is a great starting point, but we now need to have much deeper discussions that can move us forward. And my own reflection on that framework is that it was almost a child-free zone. We saw very little in that framework around children and their well-being, and we saw 
insufficient consideration of how we do reduce poverty in Australia and how we ultimately end poverty in this wealthy country. So I think there's much more to say about that wellbeing framework. And Greta and I both really excited about it. And stay tuned for some future episodes that really delve into that new Measuring What Matters framework for Australia. This podcast is produced by the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy, and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. That will keep you up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, please do leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the pod. We love hearing from you, our audience, so please do reach out to us on Twitter or whatever that platform's now calling itself at ANU Crawford or through the Crawford School Public Policy LinkedIn page. And that's all we have time for from now. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week.